to see people. I don't know if there's a different light setting. Maybe not. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, that was not me that shoved Jupiter in Edwin's face. He said, stop that, Brad. It wasn't me. Um, so we're in this big questions series, and I volunteer to do uh, uh, science and faith. Uh, does, does science disprove Christianity? And I feel like it's a really big topic. This talk was really hard to put together because I love a lot of the details about it, but I have like 20 minutes, and there's so many different things that have I've uh, learned in the last few years that I feel like science supports what I believe about God and who God says he is and what the Bible says about God. But we don't have time for that. So we're going to hit like the tip of the iceberg tonight. Hopefully I can share a few things of um, where, I've, where I've stumbled in my faith because of some things I learned in science that kind of rock and shook me and some things that supported um, what I believe, things that I've learned in the last few years. So I'm going to share that with you guys. Hopefully you can identify with it. My goal is that um, through whatever I share up here, that hopefully this encourages you to get in some good conversations in small group. I think this is a big topic, and I think that you're not going to learn, a t- you're not going to get a lot out of it without digging yourself and looking yourself for, for some of these evidences and looking at some of the stuff. So um, I hope I don't bore you too much because this is some of this is geeky. But here we go. So let me start where I lost myself. Um, it was my junior year in college. And I was taking a vertebrate anatomy class. So learning about humans, learning about fish, learning about um, tons of different animals. And um, I hadn't had much Darwinian biology. In fact, I, there's an evolution class that they made biology students take. I was a biology major at UNI. And they hadn't made uh, biology students take that class until I graduated. So I actually never even took that class. So I didn't get a lot of evolution shoved down my throat. And... Um, at this point, I still strongly held the belief from childhood that there was a God, that I knew, um, knew this from personal experiences, and also I've been a person that I've been able to look around at nature, and there's just been something about me that just internally I just know that some, something created, an intelligent designer. So that's kind of where I come from, and um, also with other people's experiences of God. When people have shared about God in their life, I've been able to relate to that, and I've put a foundation of belief in that. And so that's where I come from. I had a clear sense that God was real, that he created us just like Moses' description in Genesis, and had no doubt in my mind that man was created from dust, just like what Genesis 2 talks about. And then so in this class, we got to a chapter that dealt with the strong evidence that we all have common ancestry. So uh, who's all taking a biology class in here? I'm guessing most of you. Um, so I don't know if you've learned... Um, in these classes with a common ancestry, the idea is that we have all these different variety of species, but if you go back in time, we all have a common ancestor. And if you go really far back, it's almost like think of a tree that has a tree trunk and tons of branches. It's all going to come actually from one common ancestor, meaning like one form of life. And so that would be the idea of like us coming from apes and, and, and so forth. So they show this picture of Haeckel's drawings, which was in the 1800s, and it's kind of hard to see, but he drew, um, um, he was looking at some different animals, I think like a salamander, um, a chicken, a hog, a rabbit, a human, a fish, and what he noticed, you'll see um, from left to right, the vertical column symbolizes one. So I think I see fish on the left, on the far right you see human, and when he drew these drawings, his, um, this is what, some of the foundational things with uh, evolution come from this picture because he argued that they're so close in the first stages of the embryo that it's very probable that with mutations and natural selection 
that we'd have a common ancestor. They're so similar, all these varieties of different things. Like my teacher was telling me about how like we as embryos had gills and we had tails. And so all these ideas that I heard were all of a sudden making me think like, well, if we have, if we're that similar at the beginning, that makes sense to uh, if a mutation were to happen or something were to come uh, between one of those moments that like we could come from something else. It made sense to me and it, it scared me to death because, like, I never thought that I came from a monkey or came from a, a common ancestor. I thought that the Bible said God created man, and that's just how we began. And so when I saw those pictures, it rocked me. And I wouldn't say it made me not believe in God anymore, but um, it rocked me in a sense of, well, God must have somehow used macroevolution. So not natural selection, like um, a bird that has a really strong beak is going to be able to break into a seed and eat it, and it's going to survive. And then any, be- any of its offspring after that that have big beaks are going to have a better chance to survive. It wasn't the small kind of thing. It was like macroevolution, like coming, uh, a human coming from a fish, a human coming from something else completely different between uh, species. So I just thought, well, I still believe that God exists, but obviously he must have used this, and I didn't look any more into it. I didn't look for any more evidence, and my belief completely changed from this picture. So um, I go on throughout life. What's interesting is I put so much weight on these embryos just by seeing the pictures and knowing these historic pictures were in my textbooks. Um, like I said, I just accepted the evidence, and I didn't look much into it, and my belief changed. But what was crazy is here in this next picture, I don't know when I discovered this. Um, is there another picture? It was probably two, it was when I was out of college. I, I don't know if it was through a Bible study or through something else that um, someone pulled up this picture. In 1997, this guy pulls up what the actual pictures are versus uh, Haeckel's drawings. So you can see in 1847, those are his drawings, how similar they look. But those are the actual photographs of the fish, the salamander, turtle, chicken, and they're completely different. They're completely different. From his drawings. And so it was very clear. I think he was outed in 18, around the 1860s. He was outed. People um, drew, this to his atten- uh, drew this to the public attention. And it was phony. He had fudged the drawings. And my guess is he probably wanted them to be close together. So he drew them close together. And I totally know what that's like. Because I was in um, some lab classes in college. And I knew what the results were supposed to be. Or what the results I needed to get. And so sometimes I would fudge measurements. Or oh that really looks like 26 inches instead of 27 and I would fudge that. And I remember the professors would get so mad. And I was like, why? I got the results. And they're like, I would rather have you have wrong results, but do good science and record and observe exactly what you see. And Haeckel didn't do that. So he was exposed. And what's crazy is in 2008, um, I, I got, we studied these pictures for probably a month. And that's what they used to teach me to support this common ancestry. So he was found out in the 1860s. It became public. It was kind of disgraced, but they still use it in textbooks. And I've talked to some of you. I don't know what, depending on what school you go to, but some of you have those pictures in your textbooks today. So that blew my mind. So um, conclusion about this is I'm not saying all your textbooks are lying to you, but I am saying uh, check out for other evidence because this is obviously something that is still used today and um, it's not reliable. So um, another thing that is a big reason why I believe that science and faith can exist together is some things that I've learned about Einstein. So um, Einstein, some of you, a lot of you have probably heard of him. He came up with the theory of relativity. And Einstein in his early years was certain 
that the universe was static. And what I mean by that is he really believed that there was no beginning. He believed that the universe has always existed and always will exist. And in fact, in order for him to, um, to reconcile that, he had to come up with a number, a constant called the cosmological constant. And the cosmological constant allowed, through math, through a theory, that the universe was not growing or shrinking. It was just there. And that would go against the Bible, because the Bible says that there was a beginning. Um, in Genesis 1.1. So, this is what he believed. This is what he came up with. And um, he was repulsed by the idea of a... Uh, one of his colleagues said that he was repulsed of the idea of a Big Bang. So, if the universe, like I said, is, is static then conclusions can be drawn that that would actually contradict what the Bible says. But in the 1920s, the Hubble telescope was developed, and they, what was interesting is when they were using the Hubble telescope to take pictures in space, they were noticing that they would take the same picture of the, of the same stars, constellations, and the colors of the stars were slowly changing, and they kept on changing. Same picture, the, the, there's a color change. And they, they know that when there's, if it's looking at the exact same stars and there's a color change, there's a, a phenomenon called red shift. And that means that there's movement. So then they, you know, they'd look at one color and then they'd see how it shifted in the hue and the color spectrum. And they'd realize, well, this is going farther away from us and it's accelerating. So after they looked uh, clearly through the Hubble telescope, it was clear at this point in around the 1920s that this red shift is a demonstration that the universe is not static and that it's expanding, and that is what we know today. So since the 20s, we know that we do not have a static universe. So Einstein was wrong. He admitted that he was wrong, and he changed some of his calculations. I wanted to get, um, see why this would matter. So I need a volunteer who feels like they have some good lungs to come up here. Kyler, get up here. Okay, so this is our universe, and I am drawing little dots to signify galaxies, because we know that there's billions of galaxies out there. And I need you to expand this universe. Keep expanding. I'm going to wait till it pops. Really? No, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. Okay, so, so what can we see from here? No, you don't need to blow it up. <laughs> what can we see from these dots? They, they, they move further and further apart away, right? So, let's say this is where we're at today, and let's rewind. What's happening to the dots? Besides the balloon farting, what's happening? The dots are getting closer and closer together. What if I could continue to keep doing this, the dots getting closer and closer together? I can't even do it physically up here. Thank you, Kyler. Give Kyler a hand. I can't do it, but if I would continue to make this smaller and smaller, this would finally happen in one, one small moment. This would support what the Bible says about there being a beginning, right? That there's a beginning, that there was a cause. Now still, at this point, we know that the universe is expanding. There's still people who have theories of what that cause is. But this just supports and shows that the Bible is not crazy, like... In Genesis 1.1, it says that there was a beginning. God created in heaven and earth, and that supports what we know about the universe, that it is growing, that it's expanding. So that's really cool. Um, the second thing that 
has helped me, has supported my belief in God, is in DNA. I think some amazing things have been found in DNA. And one thing I want to talk about is that there's, there's biological evolution. So that's like the stuff I was talking about with Haeckel before, with the, with the common ancestry, where we're, we're going from one species to another over time. So animal to a different animal to a different animal. DNA falls into a category of a chemical evolution. So uh, looking at the chemical evolution, it's more looking at simple, small chemicals evolving to life. So when we look at DNA, we all probably know that DNA is the building blocks of life. It's like the blueprints or the code of making amino acids, which when you get a, uh, at least 400 amino acids, you can make a protein. And then proteins have different kinds of functions to make molecules that have different... It's like a, proteins are like different tools in a toolbox. And different proteins are shaped in different ways to do different things. So you think of a toolbox that has like a hammer and a saw. You probably wouldn't use a saw to try to nail a nail in a board because it's not shaped the right way. Same thing with proteins. So here's a cool example. So there was a biological probability research institution. I had to make sure I say that right. And they did this test. And they did this chance. In this test, chance is supposed to come up with any usable protein. How many of the total number of possible arrangements could be considered usable proteins? There is obviously no way on earth that anyone could say for sure. So one way to get a tentative idea is what they did was take a comparison with another system which have number of parts that work only in specific orders. And the best analogy they came up with was using the 26 letters of the alphabet. So by putting these letters in alphabet in different sequences, they were hoping to see if they could have multiple uh, messages. So um, I know that was a big mouthful, but basically they got 30,000 letters. They put all the letters in random order, and then they went through those 30,000 letters to see if there's any usable messages in the English language. So DNA, we know, is a bunch of, um, there's four different kinds of um, basic chemicals that make up DNA, and depending on their arrangement, they have a code that tells to make an amino acid, which would make a protein, and those amino acids have to be in a certain order. So think of the alphabet. The letters don't mean anything on their own, but when you have them in a specific order, they mean something. So they thought that this was a good test to figure out this idea of what's the probability of us getting some big words in 30,000 letters. So they did that. They got the 30,000 letters. They looked through all these letters, and this is crazy. Um, they had one, uh, meaningful sequences, seven letters in length. They only had one. Now remember, amino acid, you need at least four, or for a protein, you need at least 400 amino acids in the right order to make a protein. And here, the biggest number out of 30,000 they could come up with was seven. Um, meaningful sequences of uh, six letters in length. I think a couple of them didn't even, weren't even really words, but they had, like, meanings. One of them was RUINPA, R-U-I-N-P-A. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, one of them looked like an acronym. And then there was, like, it was just crazy to me how they took 30,000 letters, and they could not get too many, too many of these... Um, messages built into this. So I, this is really hard to get your mind around, so I thought let's use something that I know really well. It's like uh, a padlock. So there's 40, there's 40 numbers on the padlock, and I think I did the math, and it was something like there's 60,000 different combinations. So this gives us a ballpark idea about this. So I want to see, um, I want to see if somebody can solve a padlock. Catch that. That'd be really dangerous. 
Um, remember, hey, hey, catch, catch. Man, I want to hurt somebody. Who else wants to try and get a stab at this? Here you go. So st- go ahead, start. There's three numbers on it. You go, does everyone know how to solve a padlock? You turn it once and you go left and then right. He's listening to it. That's a good idea. Nothing? If you, hey, if, it, if you can't get it, pass it on. Give Conrad a try. Who had the padlock over here? Maria, did you get it? Turcot. Man, you guys are listening. That's... Can't get it? No, no, we, we, we got it, but then we accidentally closed it. You accidentally, cl- they got it and they accidentally closed it is what they said. I don't know if I believe that. Pass it on if you can't get it. Who, who, ha- who has it over here? You can't get it either? Come on. Somebody's got to be able to get it. What? Where's it over here? Where's it over here? Turkot, you got to pass it on if you didn't get it, man. Does anybody else that, that isn't close to these think that they could get it? Somebody have it back here? Let's go, Skiles. I mean, the chances are you guys have handed it to everybody. I mean, you've handed it three or four times over here. I don't think they all have the same combination. They're all different. Oh, Eel, you're going to get this, buddy. I didn't make the combination. I think they're made with it. With the, Like when you open up the package, it has a, a label. Huh? I don't know the combinations. You have it. Let's see this one. Where, where are my locks at? Skiles, let's see it. You already, oh, he already shut it for me? That was nice. I think that I'm not, I'm not approaching this right. You know, I think, where's the other one? Where's the key? There's no key. I'm just going to have to think of somebody who I know that could. This is the last chance. Last chance. Mason, you think you got this? Come on. Did you know if there's 
What? How did you get this? How did how did you get this? Who believes that she got that? You believe she got it? Who doesn't believe that she got it? I mean, it's open. Why don't you believe it? You think I gave her the combo? You think God gave it to her? Maybe. So I think some of you raised your hands and said that you thought that she got it, but I think most of you are like, no. I, Brad had to have given her the combination or something, or it's written on the back, which it's not. It's not written on the back. What I was trying to prove with this is like, so there's 60,000 different combinations, and then when somebody unlocks it, we meet, so at least some, most of us would react and say, there's no way. So why would we... Why would we err to the side of that random chance could put the, the DNA and put all that in order to make life? I mean, I think most of our natural re- reaction is like somebody must have gave the combination. And, and what I believe is that somebody did give the combination to life. That there was a designer that gave the combinations the right amino acids in the right order to make something. Make something meaningful. Um, in Romans 1, Paul, who used to kill Christians... And then he had a transformational encounter with God, was explaining to Christians in Rome. He said, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So Paul is letting us know that God reveals himself through nature, and we can learn qualities about God through his nature. So when I, what I loved about being a biology major is the things I was learning there showed me how complex life was. And that told me that God is complex, and God is intelligent, and God is creative. King David, a warrior and songwriter, wrote about God's greatness through creation, singing, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the world, earth, their words to the ends of the earth. So David lets us know that we are surrounded by fantastic displays of God's craftsmanship. So a story I want to close with that I think is super fascinating and has been powerful to me is um, when Helen Keller was... Um, once she started um, being able to communicate with people, she actually started uh, having a series of letters that she was writing to this really famous preacher at the time named Philip Brooks. And in one of her letters, she shared with him that she had always known about God, but she didn't have a name for God. She had said that she, nothing ever really had a name for her. She knew no concept of a name. But in her darkness and isolation, she knew that she wasn't alone. And that someone was with her. Now this is profound, and I think that this amazes me, because nobody taught her about God in Sunday school, and she didn't even have the privilege to see with her own eyes creation, the things that God has made all around. That something within her knew that she was not alone, 
and that God was with her, but she just didn't have a name about it. I believe that God wants you to know him. I mean, not only does he use creation of his hands for us to see his power, his creativity, and his vastness, but even within us, he makes himself known. So, um, if you were really excited about the subject matter tonight, and I didn't give you any answers, I apologize, but I definitely believe that we have awesome resources out there for you to dig down and dig deeper. Some things that I've used that's helped me when it comes to the subject is a book called The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. Um, I have a couple copies of that book in my office. Uh, there's a Does God Exist video series that goes in super depth with cosmology, with DNA, that talks about, and what I love about it is and some of this material doesn't just talk about the Christian viewpoint. It talks about all of them, and then they just point evidence and kind of hash the things that start not having enough evidence to make things make sense. And it's really sweet. It's helped me understand a lot in this subject. And um, also, if this is something where you want more conversations about this, I'm going to have a sign-up sheet out by the popcorn machine. And I think on Sunday nights, I'd love to get together, if there's enough people interested, to talk more in depth about the, the subject of faith and science. So... Um, like I said, come up, talk to me, and I love it in small groups. If you guys just really ask those questions that make you, some things, the things that you've learned in some of your classes that have rocked your faith, share that in small group. Some things that have helped solidify and um, supported why you believe what you believe. Um, we, I just, we really encourage those conversations in small groups. So I'm going to invite the band up, and please bow with me to pray. God, I thank you so much for being a God that is wanting for us to see you. You you try to reveal yourself through nature and the amazing creation, the work of your hands. God, help us to use our minds to, to seek you. God, we just want to experience you more and more. So that's why many of us are here. We have questions, we have doubts, we, things aren't adding up. And God, we want um, to know you more, we want to see you more, we want to feel your presence, we want to know that you're real. Some of us feel so far away from you, and um, God has helped us with this hard subject. So I ask that uh, good conversations will come out of this in small group, and that we can um, pursue you, because uh, in James it says, uh, if we will seek after you, we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so God, that's my desire for all these teenagers, that they would have something in their heart that would uh, draw near to you. And I, I know that you keep your promises and you'll draw near to us. That's this in your name.